It's humbling for me to think about a sermon that I might preach that if someone were to take just a few minutes of and, and write that out and then preach on part of that, I would feel like you, you didn't get the whole thing. And that's exactly how we have to keep Solomon in perspective. This is a sermon from beginning to end. We are looking at a piece of a puzzle that's not the whole mosaic. It's not the whole picture. And so sometimes we have to look at the box top and remember exactly what's going on. What's the big picture? Solomon, third king of Israel, he was the last king of the united monarchy. Remember, after Solomon dies, it will be split between northern and southern kingdoms, between Judah and Israel. Rehoboam, his son, would take the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam would take the northern. They would begin a civil war that would last for generations. And yet... Solomon gives his swan song here at the end of his life. He looks back at his successes and his begging plea to all of us is, listen to what I've done, learn from my mistakes, and don't take the path that I've taken. So much of this is reflection. It's looking into his past, into his present and as we'll see into the future that awaits all of us, and that is our own coffins. In Ecclesiastes 6, we come to a very interesting section. We're going to take the whole passage, the whole chapter by itself, all 12 verses. They're one unit. Little things can make massive differences sometimes, and that was the difference between success and failure and the fate of the tanker mobile oil. You may remember this story a few years ago. Two minutes after midnight on March 19th, 1984. Okay, some of you don't remember that. <clears throat> but you may remember the story. Two minutes after midnight, March 19th, 1984, the super tanker Mobile Oil ran along, along aground rather, on a rocky reef on the Columbia River. The ship smashed into the reef, put a gash 150 uh, uh, feet long into the... Uh, metal torn an inch and a half deep into the steel hull, spilling more than a thousand barrels of heavily weighted industrial oil into the river. Damage was so severe that the tanker had to be actually scrapped and put into just as much metal as they could get out of it. What I find interesting is the investigation that followed into the cause of the accident revealed that the, the rudder of the tanker had jammed and had jammed because it was missing a little cotter pin the size of a bobby pin. The ship was lost for the lack of a 16 cent piece of metal. Wasn't put back into place in the previous overhaul. The rudder stuck and the ship ran aground. Think about it. This is a multi-million dollar vessel that was wrecked because a little piece of metal, a little cotter pin, you know what a cotter pin is, it holds two pieces of metal together, secures them from, from slippage, it wasn't put back into place. Tiny little things can make massive differences. I think success in life, according to Solomon, is according to the little things. It's really big things. My mentor, John MacArthur, says when a man falls into sin, he doesn't fall very far. 
He's been leaning that direction a long time. People's failure is rarely the the result of one big bad decision. It's usually the culmination of lots of smaller, seemingly insignificant decisions. Success, though, does depend on a lot, a succession of these little things that come together. What is the little thing that Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes? It's a little thing that's easily overlooked. It's not as small as you might imagine, but if you were to think about what we've studied in Ecclesiastes, what is the little thing that is most overlooked? It's pretty simple. It's reflection. Stopping long enough to actually think about life. Ecclesiastes is a sermon of personal reflections by Solomon about the deep things of life. He takes us to the second story to think about life above the mundane. Life in the midst of the mundane. All those hours you spend between waking up and going to bed. What does it all mean? Why does it all matter? So Solomon invites us to sit with a congregation and listen to what he is preaching. And let me remind you, as deep as Ecclesiastes sounds, the audience is young people. In the culmination of chapter 12, he says, remember your creator, second person plural, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's speaking to a high school or a college or a junior high department. And we read Ecclesiastes and say, whoa, that's heavy duty. How can you talk? That's, that's really graphic. You're going to see a graphic passage tonight. Yet he's speaking to young people. So all of us need to listen. But let me just beg you, if you are a junior hire, a senior hire, a collegian, a young professional, even if you're younger than that and you're listening to that, Solomon is begging you and inviting you to come and sit at the feet of a very wise, old, and dying man and listen to what he's learned. His purpose is to force us to be brutally honest with both ourselves and God. And I think if we listen to the care, carefully to the message, it will unmask the myth of human autonomy and self-sufficiency of life apart from God. It shows us how fragile life really is and how utterly dependent each of us are on the living God. So, remember, he's the wisest man who's ever lived outside of Jesus. He was given this gift, and instead of using this gift for God's glory, as he said he would early in uh, uh, 1 Kings, he, he says, I, I want the, the gift of wisdom to be able to rule your people well, to discern good and evil, uh, 1 Kings 4 and 5. Instead, he, he does apply that. Instead, from there up until 1 Kings 11, where we see his final demise, he continually uses his own wisdom for his own gain. Ecclesiastes 2 says he, he tries the experiments of all the pleasures in the world to see what in the world life could mean. That's another way of saying, what can life offer me horizontally without the vertical relationship with God? He misused his gift of wisdom to pursue his own pleasure, and the results of this experiment prompted the writing of this book. It's a manual on coping with life in a way that he calls under the sun. It's a technical term. Under the sun means life this side of the garden and this side of heaven. Outside the garden before we get to heaven. Life in a broken world is usually unfair. So, our study in this amazing book has brought us to chapter 6. 
perhaps the most autobiographical Solomon has been or will be in the rest of the book. He opens up his heart. He bleeds honestly at the deepest level. And he takes us to the bottom of the bleak reality of life. After chapter 6, by the way, the book will take on a much different tone. But the honesty of this section, the first, the 12 verses of chapter 6, is worthy of careful consideration in one unit. Now, as we look into chapter 6, approach it together in the study, I want you to picture yourself. Picture yourself sitting with King Solomon by a fire. He's sitting with a group of people that you belong to. You've got your favorite cup of coffee or tea, and you're listening to him think about the grave reality of life and the inevitability of death and why it matters. Solomon had truly reached the top of the world. He was the richest man and the wisest man alive on the planet. So, he's going to provide for us in this section of Ecclesiastes four private lessons from the top of the world. Four private lessons from the top of the world. These are humbling lessons as well. The first one is in verses 1 and 2. Having it all does not guarantee you will enjoy it all. Having it all does not guarantee you will enjoy it all. I just read again that statistic that the saddest day, the highest number of suicides in our country is typically between uh, Christmas at midday and New Year's. Because Christmas didn't bring the satisfaction that everyone thought it would. It didn't bring the harmony and the, the family solace that we hoped. You didn't get what you wanted. Solomon's going to say that in his own words. Having it all does not guarantee you'll enjoy it all. Verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. That's outside of the Garden of Eden, this side of heaven. There's an evil which I have seen under the sun. And it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. What is he saying here? Verse 1 compares, if you, if you go back, look over at chapter 5, verse 13 for a moment. As he came naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. What he's saying is you can't take it with you, right? It doesn't go with you. There's an evil I have seen, he says. It's a pitiful case to be rich and not be able to enjoy it. No amount of money will ever make up for a life without divine joy. Let me say that again. No amount of money will make up for a life that's absent of divine joy that's found only in God and specifically for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Note the interaction here. He, he both gives wisdom, uh, he, he, he gives wealth as well as the ability to enjoy it. He he says, it's one thing to have wealth. It's something else to enjoy it. Why? Because things are, are not always as they seem to be. Having all you want doesn't mean that you'll enjoy it all. 
It's like getting salt water to a man who's thirsty. It's only an endless cycle of getting the next thing. Now remember who we're dealing with here. This is Solomon who had unlimited resources. Imagine having enough money that there was nothing, nothing that you wanted that you couldn't get. No experience that could be bought that you couldn't buy. Nothing was was left off the table. But the verdict of having it all was that it could not satisfy. We already studied that in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, listen, the stranger, this foreigner is going to come. Who is that? Some people who did not work to acquire your riches, possibly from another empire, possibly, possibly an opportunistic son or relative. And if you read carefully into Proverbs and then you look at the, at the life of Rehoboam, you recognize that he had to have a son at some, some uh, uh, level uh, in his mind here. Rehoboam was going to inherit all of his wealth. So he thought it was going to be divided pretty severely and through civil war he would lose much of it. And the thought of giving all he had worked for to a son who did not honor God was terrifying. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, Solomon, so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires, that's what he did. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them for a foreigner enjoys them. This is Habel, steam off a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment, it's gone. And a severe affliction. What he's saying is when I think about the future of all I've worked for and I won't get to enjoy that into eternity and someone will squander it away, that's heartbreaking. Having it all doesn't guarantee you will enjoy it all. This is the inability to find enjoyment, satisfaction, again, as he's told us. It's the blessing of the Adamic curse. You say it's a blessing? God has blessed us through the curse of Adam that we could never be satisfied with this world. It's a blessing that you never get everything you want. You never experience everything you want to. If we did, who would want to go to heaven? Who would want to be with God in eternity? God has blessed us with the curse of not enjoying this earth in a, in a permanent and in a... An everlasting, ever-satisfying sense. That's a good thing. To prize our fingers off this earth. Now flip that over. Find someone who is looking for satisfaction in this planet, on this planet, and in this life, and I'll show you someone who is on an endless cycle of depressing thoughts. You may be asking, but, but... but Rick, there, there, there are things that I enjoy in life. That's exactly right. Life is full of joyful things. We're going to see in, in chapter 11 that we're commanded to enjoy life. If anyone is going to enjoy the blessings of this world, it should be a Christian who can give God glory for it. It's just not the Christians who say, this is where my joy is going to stay forever. God wants us to enjoy the giver more than the gifts. In other words, praise God and thank him for the blessings of life that bring measures of happiness because they come from him. Number two, second lesson from the top of the world. Living a long life doesn't guarantee that you'll increase your happiness. Living a long life will not increase 
your happiness doesn't guarantee that you're going to be happy if you live long. This gets really intense. And this is where, again, I'm, I'm a little bit shocked when I think about his audience and how graphic he is here. And I think there's some hope for a very special group of people in our church here that you might not expect. If a man, verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity. It's talking about a miscarried child. And its name is covered in obscurity. It, this little child, never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than this old man, than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? What is this about? Solomon reverses the argument here. Instead of being childless or, or leaving all your wealth to a stranger, which is the first, three, first two verses, what if you had a lot of children and lived a long life? Our culture is obsessed with long life. We really believe that life is so wonderful and death is so awful that we'll do anything to try to stay alive. Think of what we do to try to stay alive. Vitamins, health clubs, classes, books. I went to a vitamin store recently and looked around. Be careful when you go to those vitamin stores because there's always going to be a salesman who knows how to make you live longer and better. And they're going to tell you everything you need to, all these um, extra things that you need to live longer and better. And as he was talking to me, this guy... And he kind of said, you need this and this, this will make you this, this will make you that, and what's going on. If I put all of the things that he put on the counter into my body, I wouldn't have room to eat. It, it, it was that much. Think about it for a minute. If living a long time meant happiness, then wouldn't we be all lining up at the nursing homes to spend time with all the happy people? Does living a long life guarantee happiness? I've known people in my own extended family who the older they got, the more unhappy they became. Life just kept putting splinters under their fingers, fingernails. It just kept getting more frustrating, difficult. If God does not give us the heart to enjoy. That's the good things in this verse. Give us the heart to enjoy the good things in our years. Solomon tells us it would have been better to have been a stillborn baby or a miscarried fetus. What is this about? It's hyperbole, of course, but it's truth at the same time. And I think there's something special here that Solomon actually says the, 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 the little miscarried child, I, I, this is for another sermon, but I believe is in the presence of the Lord. Solomon said, just think of the joy that that child never experienced all of the sufferings of this life, but instantly enjoyed the, the blessing of, of God. And I say that because I know there, there are many 
families that have experienced a miscarriage. This is just a sweet, sweet little evidence of God's grace to say, it's not as bad as you think for that little one. Think of what they are enjoying now. It's actually a sweet insight. Then in verse 6, familiar theme in Ecclesiastes. Death again. Just because life is extended doesn't mean it won't expire. There was a, uh, a lady that I knew uh, out in California who lived to be over 100 years old. She uh, taught Sunday school, I think, till the last week she died. Um, and uh, I had a chance to talk to her one day, and I said, ah, how you doing? How do you feel? She says, ah, I just wish the Lord would take me from this place. I'm old, and I'm broken, and this body's wearing out, and I want a new one in heaven. That was a woman who had her eternity set right in her heart. What are your honest thoughts about the end of your life? Is it like a video game that no matter how many times you get killed or you stop or the race stops, there's a reset? Maybe I I just want to keep going. I just want to keep going. I just want to keep going. For a Christian, death is not the final worst thing. It's the first greatest thing. I think we don't. Solomon's message to us all throughout Ecclesiastes is you don't think enough about death. And for a believer to think about death is a good thought. I just go always back to it. It's humorous. Paul in Philippians 1, and, and he's just, he has that argument with himself. Remember that? He says, well, I, I would rather die and go be with Christ, but if I were to stay on, that would be ministry for you, and I know that would be good. And I'm hard-pressed in both directions. I don't know what to do, and ah, I think God's going to make me stay and minister. Have you ever, I was going to say when was the last time, have you ever had a thought about, wouldn't it be amazing if this were the day that my faith became sight? What's that little thing that we're missing? What's that little thing that Solomon keeps pressing on us? Reflection. Stop and think about it. Living long doesn't mean there's no expiration on our birth certificate in heaven. Third lesson from the top of the world. Meeting all your needs does not guarantee that your greatest need is met. Meeting all your needs does not mean that your greatest need is met. Verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility. Striving after the wind. By the world standard, Solomon had arrived. But verse 7 is his confession that actually he had not arrived. Solomon is reflecting about wealth, his wisdom, what it takes to get them. Verse 7 specifically, he's saying all the work that we do to feed ourselves, to meet our most basic needs, does not bring an end to the longings of our heart. 
You work. You use the money to buy food. You eat it. You get up the next day. You do it all over again. It's an endless cycle of life. But what if you're rich and you don't have to worry about having your needs met? Solomon has already answered that question back in verses 1 and 2. And let me remind you, let me remind you, all of you, according to the Bible standards, are rich. Remember, Matthew 6 tells us that if you, if you know where you're going to sleep tonight, you have a change of clothes, and you, you know where your next meal is coming from, biblically, you're rich. We look at these and we think, oh, Solomon, gold, silver, rich. We are so wealthy. And yet it doesn't satisfy. As Bob and Aaron painfully reminded me, this today is my birthday. And I went to my favorite barbecue place and had barbecue today. And it was amazing. And it was satisfying for a little while. Given the opportunity again right now, I would have another burn-ins burger. Guaranteed. So what's, what's, the, what's the catch in all that? What, what is Solomon saying? Should we not have, have any desires, not enjoy? Do you, do you not want to put butter and salt on your potatoes and just eat them bland to show that you're really serious about the Lord? What is he saying here? He's not saying you can't enjoy the fruit of your labor. He's not saying you can't enjoy a meal. What he's saying is don't expect that that enjoyment of the little things in life that are the rewards of your labor, the rewards of your work, are going to bring you lasting satisfaction because they don't. Verse 9, there's no end to what he wants and desires. It's futility. It's habel. It's striving after the wind. And I, every time I see that striving after the wind, I think of chasing something you can't get. And um, I, I know that some of our nursery workers do this or workers downstairs. And it's a cruel, wonderful thing. And I've done it myself with my kids. Is you get those little bubbles that you blow. And you get the little toddlers and you blow the bubble. And the, the toddler goes and grabs it. And they've really got something. They open their hand and... There's nothing there. That's the imagery here. You're chasing the wind. Ever seen anybody chase the wind? My, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, this story, but my, my mother and my dad used to like to tell me that when I was, when I was little, I, their favorite thing to do was to watch me. We lived on the corner of two streets. And what I would do over and over and over is I would stand at the, at the, in the corner of our fence, and when a t- car would turn to go up our, our street, I would race it to the end of the fence. It was a sick little boy. We'd just race it all day. And, and they used to stand at the window. They took an old 9 millimeter of me doing that. Just ridiculous. What's the point of that? There's no point of that. You don't get anything from it. And even if you beat the car, which I did a few times, you don't get anything. It's Hebel. It's there for a moment and it's gone. So where do we turn if wealth is no guarantee for satisfaction? Where do we turn if a long life will not guarantee satisfaction? Where can we turn if even having all of our basic needs met does not guarantee our happiness? Fourth lesson from the top of the world. Only submitting to a sovereign God will guarantee the satisfaction you see. Only submitting to a sovereign God will guarantee the satisfaction that all of us seek. Verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. Now stop right here. What, what Solomon's going to do is he does over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, he goes back to Genesis. 
He specifically goes back to this narrative of Adam naming the animals. Really interesting illustration. Whatever exists has already been named. Adam has named everything. And it is known what man is. This is limitations. We'll come back to that. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. For there is... There are many words which increase utility. What then is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man to do during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Verse 10 shows the dignity, the authority, the power given to man in the garden to name the animals. But even with man's God-given dignity, authority, and power, he still put in his place by God who is stronger than he. I wish, in uh, at least in the American Standard, I wish it was capitalized. For he cannot dispute with him that should be capital H him who is stronger than he is. That's God. What he's saying is you may have named the animals, but I made them. There's a subtle reminder here that not only did Adam name the creatures of God's creation, but he also sinned. Look at what it says. It is known what man is. Oh, you may have named the animals, but you know that you fell away from God's draw. It's another reminder that God is indeed the sovereign king and ruler over everything. And verse 11, I think, is probably an allusion to the excuses given by Adam and Eve to God for their sin. Just many words. I can talk my way out of this. And when you can't talk the way out of it, blame your wife. That's what Adam did. The woman thou gavest me. I love the King James on that. The point is that complaining about dissatisfaction in this world, even complaining about our sin, actually increases the futility we experience in life. And the mere discussion of the maladies of our, our broken world will gain us no advantage. We are perpetual complainers. There are some of us in this room who were complaining this week about how cold it was, who a few months ago were complaining about how hot it was. And the same thing will happen over and over again. We complain about everything. It's to this, it's to that. Then verse 12 is the rock bottom of the book of Ecclesiastes. What a commentary this is. Look back at verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? That's the question of the whole book. Who knows what is good? And then he defines it really interestingly here. Look what he says. He will spin them like a shadow. A shadow means it's not the substance. It's only the, the shadow of the substance. That's life. This life is only a shadow. It's not the real thing. This is not real eternity. Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Now, this is where we have to borrow from the progression of the rest of the book because his conclusion to chapter 6 will show up in chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12 where he'll tell us and instruct us over and over, you're not going to find satisfaction in anything here in a longer life, in any person, in anything you own, in any experience you have that will last except for a right relationship with God. Only submission to a sovereign God will guarantee the satisfaction you seek. Can we have a sneak peek look ahead? Look at chapter 11. Remember the audience. It's, it's these young people. It almost sounds like a bait and switch. 
Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your youth, during your young days, your childhood. It's not, not a great translation, childhood. It means when you're young and you can, as opposed to chapter uh, 12, where you're old and you can't. But that's another sermon. Rejoice, young man, when you can, during your childhood. And let your heart be pleasant during the days of, of your youth. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Listen. Students, listen. It is a command of God to enjoy your life. Is, is that a good verse? God commands you, follow your impulses. Enjoy life while you can. Yeah. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Wait a minute. Are you telling me to go do something and I'll be judged for? No. He's telling you to do something and enjoy it that you won't be judged for. Enjoy life between the covers of your Bible. So, verse 10, remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Enjoy life in the ways you can while you can. Remember, that if you put all of your satisfaction in those things that, that you enjoy, you're not going to be lastingly satisfied. Only submitting to God who is indeed, I love what it says here in the verse, stronger than us will bring satisfaction, happiness, perspective, understanding, wisdom, peace, and contentment. So Solomon has escorted us again to our funeral and walked us up to our coffin and said, you do remember, you do remember this is where you're going to be, right? You do remember this life is going to end, right? You do remember that living long, having all you want, experiencing all you want, living the dream that your, your, your mind has concocted, you do know that that will come to an end, don't you? Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? After you die, in eternity. Who can tell you? Solomon says, I can. And remember, we're looking at the piece, not the box cover with the whole picture. And the conclusion is to fear God and keep his commandments. And that's the way you prepare to meet your maker. 